Ramble. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. And you know those core memories that you, you hold on to for the rest of your life? You know those? Come on now. <laughs> like, Are you serious? Like you don't have what? like a core memory? Like, okay. Like when I get beat by my grandma. Okay, all right, all right. The carnival was kind of like that for Pee Wee Gaskins. This was his core memory. It was more than just this fond memory that he would always have to look back on later. No, it was a life-changing day. Pee-wee had never been to the mother freaking carnival, but he would end up falling in love so much so that later he would join the traveling carnival two times, not once, but twice. But for now, he's just a little boy. He's a little boy going to the carnival with his mom and his stepdaddy and the bright lights, the striking red everywhere, the smell of that caramel popcorn, the sound of children laughing. I mean, it was, it was going to be a perfect day. Pee-wee needed a perfect day. His name is Pee Wee. It do be Pee Wee. So he was born Donald, but they call him Pee Wee. Pee Wee. Okay. Yeah, Pee Wee needed a perfect day. He had a bit of a rough childhood. I mean, his nickname was Pee Wee, so that should tell you enough. One of the main events of the carnival that day was centered around this big king cobra that was in a cage in the center of the carnival tent. A curious audience started to assemble around the cage. Hear ye, hear all, come here. <laughs> That's what they said. And the carnival guy is like, come on, everyone, let's gather. It's about to be time for the big, big show. So Pee-wee and his family, they're all standing there. And Pee-wee is mesmerized by this snake. He followed the snake with the length of his eyes. And it was very clear that the snake had been fed properly very recently. There was a huge bulge for where the poor victim to that snake was. I mean, it's like a big rat-sized bulge in the middle of this King Cobra snake. It looked like he just swallowed 20 rats. So Pee-wee's thinking, okay, well, this is not going to be much of a show if the snake already ate. The snake's not going to be hungry. But the carnival worker dropped a live rat into the cage. Pee-wee almost looked away because, like he said, the snake already ate. But there was just something about the way that the rat ran around the cage, sprinting around trying to find an exit until it finally stopped. And it realized there is no leaving this cage. You are in this cage with this king cobra. And then it just stood still. As if being as still as possible would make it invisible. Or maybe it was paralyzed in fear. He didn't know which one. But he just couldn't take his eyes off the interaction. For a while, the king cobra did nothing. And then very slowly, the king cobra raised itself up as if it were about to strike the rat. And boom, it did. Pee-wee thought that that was just crazy. Pee-wee later wrote about this experience, and he said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, that is what makes the cobra the most dangerous of all reptiles. The fact that even as I watch it, it is preparing to kill for no reason other than the fact that it has decided to kill. It's not killing because it's hungry. It's not killing out of necessity. It's killing because it just wants to kill. Pee-wee looked up at his cousin that he came with, and she was holding on tightly to Pee-wee's mom's leg. Pee-wee's mom and Pee-wee's stepdaddy, they both looked so uncomfortable, if not scared, if you will. But Pee-wee, he had a raging erection. It was in that moment he said that he decided he was going to be a king cobra, and that meant he wanted to become the most prolific serial killer in all of the U.S. 
As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. Now, I can't say that there is a really good book on this case because I don't know if good is the right word to describe this book, but there is one called Final Truth, the autobiography of Pee Wee Gaskins. Yeah, okay. There is, however, an amazing 13-episode podcast that's linked in the show notes. Um, It's called Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. It's an amazing listen. It was created by a literary professor who spent countless hours interviewing peewee for a book that was supposed to be published but didn't end up getting published the pod was very well done it it was honestly fascinating to get inside of peewee gaskin's head for a little bit although i feel like i desperately need therapy after that because it's a lot so with that being said let's get into it there were a lot of signs that peewee was going to be bad it wasn't just a fateful day at the carnival no There were times that he and his friends would do deplorable things. For an instance, when they were 13 years old, they had gang-raped one of their younger sisters because they all wanted to try, quote, being with a virgin. There was the time that Pee-wee would be a full-grown adult and assault a two-year-old baby. He called it the best time of his life. But he also said that he felt PMS symptoms. And you're like, okay, that's fine. Maybe he does feel pre-menstrual syndrome, you know, that, that's when, you, before you have your period, you get cramps and muscle aches, fatigue, water retention, appetite changes. But Pee-wee said, no, no, it wasn't that. It was like this unshakable, bothersome irritability, this headache that would travel from the tip of my balls all the way up into my head, and it would just sit right behind my eyeballs, and it would just ache, and I felt like I wanted to itch it out because it was giving me a headache, and I couldn't even think straight. You know, I called it PMS. They were my pre-murdering symptoms. Anytime he had PMS, he knew what he had to do. He had to go out and he had to kill. What's crazy is that these were just the warning signs. Like this is all leading up to him getting caught and he's had so many run-ins with the law. This is not going to be one of those serial killer cases where he was flying under the radar for so long. This guy was in and out of prison. In and out of prison, and the authorities just didn't care. They let Pee-wee become a serial killer, a thief, arsonist, sadist, rapist, and a cannibal. So, um, let's see how we got there. Listen, we have covered a lot of messed up serial killers on this pod. You know most of them clearly have some loose screws, but Donald Gaskin's life story is bizarre. It's chaotic. It's hectic from beginning to end. You're going to feel like you've been in just one of those go-around roller coasters where you go in circles. That's the vibe. That's just stay with me. The best way to describe it is, do you know the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Yeah, I guess that, yeah, it makes, that sense. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, that kind of sums up his entire life. Now, keep in mind, a lot of Donald's childhood was provided by Donald. So we have to take everything with a grain of salt or a sprinkle of flaky salt. Because the thing about Donald is he strikes me as the type of guy that would lie to you about the most bizarre thing that he doesn't even benefit from lying to you by. But he'll lie. And later, if you confront him like, hey, Donald, why would you lie about having a nine foot statue of Jesus in front of your house when you clearly don't? He will have no reason as to why he lied. He won't even feel ashamed that he lied about it. He'll just be like, I don't know what you're talking about. He is a compulsive liar is what I'm trying to say. And this case is is a bit different because Pee Wee wrote a book. He wrote us an autobiography, right? And we kind of have to talk about it. 
Listen, half the stuff in this book, the final truth, was not corroborated by authorities. So as far as we know, half of the book could be Pee Wee's compulsive lying on display. So I'm serious. Keep your salt handy. The book was only available on hardcover. But if you're like me, you like to scour the internet for uploaded PDF files (laughs) from like shady websites. So that's great. You know, it's there. It's shady. I skimmed it. Don't recommend it. No. Pee Wee Gaskins was born on a farm in a tiny little town called Prospect in South Carolina. Pee Wee's mom, Yulia Parrott, aka Molly, had him when she was really young. Most sources say that she was about 14 years old. Now, backstory on our girl Molly. When she was just 12 years old, her parents were like, we own this tobacco farm. You, you got to get out of school. You can't be in there learning math and all these other things with the boys. We need you all hands on deck. We need you to work the fields. So she's out there day in, day out, 12 years old, and she catches the watchful eye of her neighbor. I know it sounds like a Prince Charming type of situation. He's going to swoop in, save the farm, save the family, most importantly, save Molly. No. Imagine your creepy, drunk, but wealthy neighbor. That's that guy. His name was Donald Gaskin Sr., He called Molly over to his property. She galloped over and he said, how about this? I give you a dollar a week and you come have sex with me whenever I want. Molly agreed. I mean, it's the Great Depression era. Her family needs money, so don't judge her, right? Judge the drunk neighbor who's trying to take advantage of the 14-year-old girl. So they start having sex. Molly gets pregnant at 14. After that, Donald is like, you know what? I was giving you $4 a month. Let me give you $10 a month instead. Side note, I'm like, whoa, $10 a month back in the day? That must be like a million dollars now. At least this guy is rich and generous with his child support. $10 a month back then is $225 in today's money calculated for inflation. That is not good child support. But what choice did Molly have? She took the money. She tried her best to take care of this tiny little baby that she just gave birth to. I mean, tiny little baby. Pee Wee Gaskins was only four pounds when he was born, which is alarmingly small. Now, side note, this isn't even Molly's first baby. She has like four other children, allegedly all by different men. So there's a lot going on in this tiny little town of Prospect, okay? Yeah, a lot of alarming stuff. It's said that all the kids might have been a result of Molly engaging in sex work, but it's not clear. Now, Molly's kids did say that even after they were born, Molly constantly had a revolving door of men in and out of the house. They had no idea if these men were paying customers or... They were boyfriends. They just know that they were quite abusive. That's all they can remember. And just to give you more insight on Molly's parenting or lack of, Pee Wee said, you know, being born on a farm, I know the difference between raising something and it just growing. You raise tobacco and vegetables to harvest. You raise pigs and sheep to butcher. They got purpose. You know, you care for them. But weeds grow on their own. Doesn't matter if you tend to them or not. I grew. I wasn't raised. That's for damn sure. My kids just grew. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's just saying that he just grew like his mom was not around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his mom was not around to raise him. He just grew. And I can't say this is part of his compulsive lying. I actually think it's the truth. It said that Molly's partners or customers, we don't know, would constantly beat up on Pee Wee for the smallest little things. They would lock him outside the house when they came over. They would freak him out, call him names, belittle him, beat him up physically. And Molly would just let it happen. So it sounds like she's kind of a negligent mom, but it's also worse than that. Molly would sometimes have sex with these men in front of Pee Wee, and the men would taunt Pee Wee. They would laugh at him. 
No, this is a little boy. He he's getting worked up. He hates what he's seeing. He feels uncomfortable. He tries to push the two adults apart because he's like, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. And Molly's boyfriends seem to get a kick out of that. And she just let them. Now, this part is alleged, but some sources even say that Molly would watch as some of her clients or boyfriends would either fondle or rape Pee Wee in front of her. And she would never do anything to stop it. Again, this part is alleged, so I'm not sure. But it does seem like Pee Wee had a soft spot for his mom. Because later on in prison, seeing his mom was the only thing that made him emotional. He seemed so happy to see his mom. It was the first time people saw Pee Wee smile after being thrown in prison, so... You know, make of that what you will. I feel like the man has some mommy issues. Now, I don't know if the sexual assault was taking place, but I do know that Molly was absolutely a thousand percent neglectful. Sometimes she would just get up and leave her entire family for days or weeks at a time to be with one of her boyfriends. And Pee Wee said this about all her boyfriends. You know, when I was younger, there was always one or another or a bunch of different stepdaddies around. I always called them sir or stepdaddy. I never bothered to learn most of their names because I knew my mama wasn't married to them and they probably wouldn't be around for long. The one she did marry was a mean son of a bitch. He used to backhand me and knock me clean across the room just for practice. But then again, everyone knocked me around. My uncles, my other stepdaddies, and even all the boys and girls in school. They used to beat me up because I was so little. Okay, Pee definitely was on the smaller side. As an adult, he would just be 5'3 and weigh under 130 pounds. And he claims that the reason that he got this nickname was because he was so small. The other bullies needed a reason to beat him up, to jump him. Otherwise, all the adults, the teachers, they would get mad at the kids. Hey, bullies, why are you beating up on the smallest kid for no reason? So all the neighborhood bullies would gather and taunt Pee-wee, and they would go, Oh, Pee-wee, Pee-wee, stop playing with your pee-pee. And they would do this enough times till Pee-wee got so fed up, he would get up and try to hit one of them. And that was the excuse all the bullies would need to jump Pee-wee. What's interesting is that Pee-wee ended up loving the nickname. Yeah, he embraced it. He owned it. Everyone called him Pee-wee and he started introducing himself as Pee-wee. Like that was just his name. It stuck with him for the rest of his life. Now, there is speculation on why Pee-wee was so small in stature, I guess. It's said that when he was one years old, I don't know if this was out of curiosity or hunger, but he had downed an entire bottle of kerosene. He didn't die, but until he was three years old, he suffered from random convulsions, and the damage caused by this would make it very hard for him to ingest things properly for the longest time. So apparently he had night terrors, he had trouble eating, trouble sleeping. He just wasn't growing the way that he should have. Now, Pee-wee just uses this whole incident to blame not only his height, his stature, but also his homicidal tendencies. He said, it wasn't until I drank that kerosene when I was one. And I don't know. There have been no doctors to back that up, but it's a very interesting thought. As Pee-wee starts growing up a bit more, he starts finding his own group of friends that aren't going to beat him up for being small. And they decide that they're going to do something innovative. So mind-blowingly creative, it'll get them all the street credit at school. That is, they're going to dig a trench behind the local church bathroom. And when women and girls come to use the bathroom, they're going to spy on them. They would essentially be giant peeping toms at church. They were caught, and Pee-wee said it was the worst beating of his life. His entire butt region was turned into ribbons. He couldn't sit for weeks. And he's like, I don't even know why I did it, because I don't even like girls. You're like, what? So he said, I mean, I wanted to spy on girls, 
but you thought I was feeling you? Like, it's okay. What he says about girls is weird because he identifies as straight, but this is what he says. Girls piss me off. The way I saw it, they had something boys wanted, but wouldn't even let a boy look at it. Much less fuck it, unless the boy did whatever she wanted. It made me so mad that them bitches could do anything they wanted, show their asses, make fun of me, even beat me up, and dare me to do something about it, knowing I couldn't do anything without being punished by adults. (sighs) Yeah. Like, he's already so mad at girls for having body parts and he's not allowed to touch him (laughs) like what (laughs) this is so alarming to me so at just 11 years old peewee is over it he drops out of high school and he starts working at a local garage to help repair cars that's when he runs into two boys danny and marsh why does this sound like the worst trio ever? Danny, Marsh, and Pee Wee. <laughs> they were all around Pee Wee's age. They're 11. They had also dropped out of school. It made sense that the three of them would become friends. They start hanging out all the time. They called themselves the Trouble Trio. It's a cute name for a group of 11-year-olds. It's giving like stranger things. What are they doing? Running around on their bikes and building little tree houses? No, the Trouble Trio mainly participated in burglarizing homes and cars at the ripe young age of 11 years old. It didn't really start out like that. Okay, so in the beginning, they would just steal candy and cigarettes from vending machines. Then they would find an abandoned house in the woods that they dubbed their hideout. And they would just smoke and talk about bitches and stuff. I don't know. I feel like they're the type that called everybody bitches, right? But when that got too repetitive, they started going for the big stuff. The homes, the cars, full-blown burglary. Danny's dad actually wins parent of the year. He sits all of three boys down. Son, we gotta talk about the burglaries. You're doing it all wrong. You gotta do it like this if you wanna go for the long run. Yeah, Danny's dad sat them down and gave them advice on how to break into homes, what kinds of things to steal, what's worth the money, what's not. Danny's dad even offered to sell what they stole to a connection of his. And when the boys had made enough money, they gave it to Danny's dad and he bought them a brand new Ford. The boys are 12 and 13 at this point. (laughs) Danny's dad gifted them a car with stolen money. It's all so messed up, honestly. So the Trouble Trio, they learn to drive and they start driving the car to the closest military base because there's a ton of sex workers in that area. They would pick up sex workers here and there. And again, these guys are 12 and 13 years old. So they're having a blast. But Pee Wee said, you know, there's just something about sex workers. He said, and I quote, there was something about them whores that I just didn't like. So they stopped visiting the sex workers and instead they started raping young kids in the area. It said that Marsh had a thing for young boys, so Pee-wee and Danny would help him lure young boys to one of their homes, or their little hideout spot, where they would take turns beating up the young boy, and then Marsh would rape the boy while his buddies would watch. This is really weird, but the other two boys, Danny and Pee-wee, said, you know, we watched Marsh rape the kids out of support. Because we tried raping the little boys, but we just weren't into it. So we mainly stuck around to support our buddy Marsh. Oh, and sometimes we also let Marsh perform fellatio on us whenever he wanted because he's our friend. Pee-wee said, and I quote, we would let him suck us off whenever he wanted to because he's our friend. Huh. Okay. It's like all really alarming. Like, I think there's so much levels to, oh no, we definitely need a child psychologist in here, right? I don't even know how to unpack it. So, wow. Now back to the little boys. When they were done, they would tell them, if you tell anyone... We're going to find you and you're going to get it a thousand times worse. And they would release him. 
They carried this on for a while, and it seems like the Trouble Trio tried it with girls too, but most girls would never make it that far. They would never follow them back home or anywhere for that matter because they had a reputation. This is a small town. These are the three boys that dropped out of school. Like, nobody wanted to hang out with you. If they hung out with you, their parents would give them a beating afterwards. Even just being in the backseat of these boys' Ford was social death because the three boys would go around saying, anyone that's been in our backseat has only been there for one thing and one thing only. Fucking. They, yeah. This is how Pee Wee described the girls that they had sex with in the back of their car. There were some girls that were agreeable, aka some girls that wanted to have sex, meaning only a small portion of the girls were not raped. But even if they didn't charge money for their private areas, they had fucked so many boys that there weren't any tighter or tenderer than them old, worn-out military whores. I'm sorry, what? And I guess Marsh was feeling the same way because he grabbed the trouble trio for an emergency meeting and he told them, guys, I really want to have sex with a virgin. Danny and Pee Wee are like, yeah, and where do you suppose we find one of those? None of them will hang out with us. None of them will even give us the time of day. Well, that's why I brought you boys here. Because I've thought of someone. Who? My sister. Yes, you heard that right. Marsh was offering up his own younger sister for the trouble trio to gang rape. He wanted to rape his own little sister and then watch his friends rape her. Literally, I'm sorry, what? Marsh ran home, asked his mom for permission. He's like, mom, mom, me and the boys, yeah, Danny and Pee Wee, we're just going to take, um, let's call her Julie. We're just going to take Julie to the movies. Is that okay? Marsha's mom is like, yeah, 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 be back by dinner. And the four of them rush out of the house in excitement. But Julie finds herself in the abandoned house called the hideout spot instead. How old is Julie? Oh, I think she's like five years younger than them. Oh my yeah, gosh. she's very young. And Pee Wee describes the assault in the book in the most disgusting, vile, like descriptive terms that I'm not going to read to you. But essentially, they stripped her down. They studied her like she was some sort of... Lab rad made her perform fellatio on all three of them and then each took turns raping her vaginally and then sodomizing her. Pee-wee said, and I quote, we each came I don't know how many times. It's like we couldn't get enough. But even though we didn't hit her or do nothing to hurt her, she still cried and begged us to stop. But we just couldn't. It was too good. That's what he said. You know, people always say, oh, they're just kids. But when you're 13 and you think like that, I'm more scared of what you're going to be when you're an adult. I'm not like, oh, he's going to grow out of it. That's so alarming. And when they were done, they drove her to get burgers and promised to, to give her a ton of money if she promised to never tell on them. Of course, she's like, of course, I, I, I'll never. The minute that they were back home, she ran to her mom and told her everything. Thank God. Now, Marsha's parents sat all three boys down. And beat the shit out of each one. Marsh was beaten till he was a bloody unmoving mess. And Pee Wee remembered Marsh's mom whipping him, yelling, You goddamn little piece of shit, I ought to cut it off right now. And just before losing consciousness, he got a raging erection from the beating. He said that Marsh's mom was lashing at his testicles and penis with a belt, like literally hitting him in his private areas with a belt. He said it was so rough that he was certain he could never use his private areas ever again. But somehow that turned him on. Pee Wee would later describe this whole gang rape as a very fulfilling part of his life. Listen, I'm glad that the monsters got a beating, okay? Don't get me wrong. But what confuses me is why didn't Marsh's parents call the police? 
I, I don't know. I guess if they called the police, Marsh would be taken in too. But I just don't see how you could not call the police after something like this, even if that is your son. Instead, the family just packed up after this incident, moved away. Danny's family moved away soon, too. So now it's just Pee Wee left on his own. And he thought he might as well, you know, keep up the tradition. Look on the bright side. All the homes that he's burglarizing now, at least he doesn't have to split the earnings. This is all before he's 13. And when he does turn 13, another life-changing incident occurs. Pee Wee Gaskins was sent to reform school. Okay, so authorities in Pee Wee have a very different version of why he was sent away. According to police, Pee Wee had broken into a young woman's home. He wanted to burglarize it. He knew the owner of the home, and the daughter actually went to the same school before he dropped out. Anyway, daughter's maybe 16 when this happened. She realized someone had just broken in. She's home. She freaks out. Instead of calling for help, she's going to gaslight girl boss her way out of this. She grabs a freaking axe. She goes at Pee Wee with the axe like, get out of my house. What are you doing in my house? He fights back, defends himself, grabs the axe from her hands and struck her in the head, cracking her skull with the axe. And once he realized, oh my God, she saw my face. I just cracked her head open with the freaking axe. I got to go. He zoomed out of there. Thankfully, the girl made a full recovery. But Pee-wee was arrested and convicted for assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill. Pee-wee has an entirely different version of the story. When I say entirely, I mean entirely. He completely denied ever having broken into the woman's home. What? Okay, so what about the whole axe situation? Okay, here's the deal. I was minding my own business, walking through the town, which is, you know, small. So I don't know if you can really call it a town, but there's just cornfields everywhere. I was walking by the cornfields. Actually, scratch that. Yeah, I'm in the cornfields. Okay, great change of story. Love it already. It sounds very credible. Anyway, I was walking through the cornfields trying to fix some bikes for work. And I saw this woman getting attacked in the cornfield. And there was a man with an axe who bonked her on the side of the head. And then he fled. So I rushed to her and she was bleeding all over herself and me. Yeah, that's what happened. The story clearly doesn't make sense. Pee Wee doesn't even have good answers on how he helped her, why the woman would lie, how he got her to the hospital. Did he finish fixing up those bikes? Like it's not even remotely a true story. He didn't even put his whole panini into the lie. It was just such a random lie. He just kept claiming that the police were coming up with some weird home invasion theory to throw him into reform school. The judge did not buy it either, okay? And at the court proceeding, the judge sentenced Pee Wee to four years at the reform school. And that's how he ends up at South Carolina Industrial School for White Boys. It's literally called for white boys because there was actually a reform school for black boys, but it was called something quite inflammatory that I don't want to say. Um... Yeah, it's as racist as it sounds. And the saddest part is the white boys reform school was already incredibly hostile and cruel. So I can't imagine how bad the black boys reformatory school was. I imagine it was a lot, lot worse. In any case, the South Carolina reform school gives very much Dozier school for boys vibes. It's just an awful place. Pee Wee endured some horrible, horrible abuse behind those walls. This was more of a prison than a school. The kids there were treated like full-on inmates, and according to Pee Wee, there was something called the pecking order, which meant, and I quote, the big kids assaulted the littler kids. And Pee Wee was one of the smallest boys there. The first night at reform school, one of the biggest boys 
let's call him Poss. Well, that's his name. I don't know if that's his legal name, but that's what everyone called him. Poss. He weighed over 200 pounds. He was six feet tall. He was one of the biggest boys. Walked over and told Pee Wee, come to my bed after lights out. No hello, no introduction, nothing. And Pee Wee was confused. He didn't know about the pecking order yet. So he's like, wait, what for? Oh, I'm going to fuck you. That night, Pee-wee sat there and thought about his options. He could go and be assaulted in front of everyone, therefore sending out the message that he was okay with this and more might try to assault him later. Or he could not go, which felt safer, but would he get retaliated on tomorrow? He didn't know. He had read the school rule book, though, before coming to reform school, and there were strict rules on what would happen to anyone that was caught doing, quote, unnatural sex acts. And again, this is South Carolina a long time ago, so unnatural sex acts could just be like gay sex or it could be any like kinky sex. I don't know what unnatural sex acts are, but it said that anyone performing that would be punished, forced into isolation, and the school was probably going to protect him, right? Because, you know, the big, the big friend wanted to do unnatural sex acts with him, so there had to be consequences. PB was wrong. He didn't show up to the guy's bed that night, and the next day in the shower room, Six boys grabbed Pee-wee, forced him spread eagle on the shower floor. Four boys had down, held down his limbs. One sat over his face, and the leader of the group, Poss, crouched down, put a knife to Pee-wee's throat, and let him know, listen, Pee-wee, there's no use in fighting back. And he sodomized him. And as soon as he was done, he assaulted Pee-wee in the mouth. And it was like a like a factory line someone else took his place and then someone else took his place peewee said that he was sodomized and raped orally by at least 20 boys he said and i quote thinking back on it i figure that in less than an hour i was gang raped by at least 20 boys and most of them took seconds in my mouth i had never felt anything like that in my life when they were finally done with me, I was so sore, I couldn't move, and I heard Poss tell two boys to carry me back to my bunk. When I was there, Poss leaned over and said that I had two choices. Either I could do whatever he wanted me to, whenever he wanted, or he would see to it that I got gang-raped like that on the regular. Pee-wee slept on it, and he, he knew that he could always go to the supervisor and let them know what happened, but that meant that all the other boys would get in trouble, Pee-wee would be forced into solitary isolation for his own safety, and these solitary isolation units, they were in the basement. They were horrible. They were dark, damp, no running water, no toilet. You just got a bucket. You had nobody to talk to, no radio, nothing, just you and your thoughts and no sunlight for like days. That sounded worse than what he had gone through. So Pee-wee accepted the abuse. I mean, what choice did he have? He went to Poss and told him that he would do what he wanted. Which, side note, um, Poss's nickname in school was also Boss Boy, which I think is so weird, so we're going to call him Boss Boy. Pee-wee started training sexual favors for protection from Boss Boy. Sometimes, Boss Boy would have Pee-wee perform other sexual favors for some of his friends. Like, just trade him around. Or rival Boss Boys at the school that he was fighting with, he'd be like, hey... Let's end this feud if I give you Pee-wee for the night. Yeah. And Pee-wee said it was unpleasant, but he did it because it was better than being gang-raped. Which you're like, okay. Well, I hope this experience made him feel horrible for what he did to Marsha's sister, of how they gang-raped her. Now, he kind of understood how it must have felt, right? Sadly, no. Pee-wee couldn't care less. Like, he's the type that only cared about rape if he was the one being raped. 
But the minute that he was not being raped and he could be the rapist and he was in a position of power, it's like he didn't care at all. So he was raped by a boss boy and his gang on multiple occasions. Sometimes they even made Pee Wee run around in girls' underwear just so that they could laugh at him. So of course, like this guy is miserable. He runs away from the reform school countless times. And each time the sheriff's office would drag him back to the front door by his collar. And then he was thrown into hard labor isolation. This is very different from solitary isolation. Hard labor isolation was considered severe punishment. You could be beaten, forced to wake up every morning at 4 a.m. You had to clean, mop, wash dishes, prep meals for the cafeteria. That took all morning. That's the amateur stuff. Then in the day, you would be dragged outside no matter the weather and forced to dig holes. Yeah, like the movie. There was no purpose for the holes. It wasn't a grave. Nobody would get buried. The purpose for you was to break your back digging and then another boy would come up right behind you in front of your eyes and fill up the hole. Then you would have to go dig hole number two and do this all day. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if the boys didn't do a good job digging useless holes that would never be used, they would be whipped until they bled. Then they were thrown a bucket and sent back to their cells where they would sleep for about five hours or so before repeating the whole process again the next day for months on end. This is what they did on repeat. Pee Wee said whatever boss boy and the other kids were doing to him, it was better than the hard isolation, hard labor isolation. Like anything was better than the hard labor isolation. Finally, the one millionth time that Pee Wee was caught escaping, the sheriff was in the car and he's like, you know what, I don't even, I'll just see you in like two days. What does that mean? Yeah, the sheriff saw Pee Wee had escaped, but he thought, if I just take him back to reform school, he's going to get out in another two days, and then I got to bring him back, and I, I'm just kind of lazy right now, so I'm going to let him roam. What? <sighs> yeah, so this is when Pee Wee makes eye contact with the sheriff, and is like, oh my God, he didn't bring me back to reform school. This is my lucky break. I really have to make this work. In order to not get sent back to the school, Pee Wee joined the traveling carnival. So that he could skip town a lot, right? Now, his job was not nearly as fun as it sounds. He was a roustabout, meaning he just helped during setup and takedown of the carnival. So he would pack it up, move to the next town, set it up, pack it up, which honestly makes you really question those state carnivals that we would go to, like the state fairs. Because <laughs> imagine it's like Pee Wee setting it up. I don't trust you. <laughs> now, at one of the carnivals, Pee Wee falls in love with a 13-year-old girl who also worked there. And they soon get married. They would also have children together, but there's just a lot going on in Pee-wee's life. And being a good dad or a good husband did not make the priority list. Pee-wee would get married six times in his life. And it just didn't seem like most of his wives were big parts of his life. Pee-wee was later asked about the sheer number of marriages. Like even from a technical standpoint, that is a lot of paperwork, you know, to get married, file for divorce and do it all over again. His response was just, oh, then just don't get a divorce. Just go and buy another marriage license. Easy. So this guy was married six times at the same time. Finally, he turns 18 and he thinks of becoming a bit of an entrepreneur, if you will. He starts helping local farmers by burning down their barns so that they could claim insurance. Sometimes it would make more sense for these farmers to burn down their barn than to sell it because they would get more money out of insurance, you know? So that's what you do. You call the good old barn burner. That's what they were called, barn burners. As a profession. I don't know how you get started in this line of business. Like, do you have business cards? How do you test it out? You're like, did you know that barn that burnt down? That was me. Nobody knew. I don't know. <laughs> it's just weird. But locals in the area, they started to get a bit suspicious of Pee Wee. 
He was always around when Barnes went down, huh? Are you committing arson? Pee-wee even had a regular job as cover for working, you know. Um, he worked on a tobacco farm. So when word of him being the fire starter gets around, his boss's daughter confronts him about it. And honestly, confronts is a big word. She was mainly teasing him. She's like, are you the barn burner? You're the barn burner. And instead of just denying the allegations or <laughs> the barn burner, what, what is that? Pee-wee is like, please don't call the cops. And then he grabbed a hammer and smashed it against her head. Yeah, to prevent her from calling the cops. He killed her or just no. attacked? No, uh, I think he tried to kill her, but thank God she would make a full recovery. It was a very bizarre solu- situation and a very bizarre solution to her not ratting him out to the police because Pee Wee was arrested. He was originally given a five-year sentence in prison for assault with a deadly weapon and attempted murder. Like, these are big, big crimes. These are big boy crimes. And the fact that he got a five-year sentence is insane to me. And when he was being sentenced, this is like the lightest sentence ever. He stands up and tells the judge, you're a fucking son of a bitch. And the judge was like, oh, yeah, six years. So he he got a six year sentence, which, again, still doesn't seem like a lot for attempted murder. Pee Wee said prison was very similar to the reform school, but just on steroids. There was a lot more sexual abuse going on. There was another power system. In the school, it was bigger boys assault little boys, but here it was called the power men of the pen. The power men were a group of guys in power, and everybody else was essentially a rape victim. And when, quote, new meat came through the door, aka peewee, the power men would have their pick of who wanted the new meat. If you claim the new meat, that's your meat forever. Like, that's yours. You're the butcher. So Arthur was practically salivating when Pee-wee walked in. So he called Dibs, walked over to Pee-wee's cell. Again, no hello, nothing. Just told him, take off your clothes. Pee-wee knew the drill. He stripped down, expecting to just get sodomized. And he waited and waited, but Arthur just stared at him. And as Pee-wee starts to relax a little bit, like, okay, maybe he just wanted to see my naked bod, right? Arthur picks up his foot and kicks Pee-wee as hard as he can in the balls. Pee-wee threw himself onto the ground in agony, and Arthur continued to beat him. That's how he did it with all his victims. He would beat them into submission first. Arthur walked out with the new meat on his roster. Pee-wee limped out of the cell with two black eyes, a bloody nose, and he had been sodomized after his beating. Pee-wee said Arthur was big, and he took a real long time, and it hurt bad. Afterwards, he made me lick him clean. The book is graphic. And so for the next six months, Pee-wee found himself doing whatever Arthur wanted. Sometimes that included being traded to other power men who wanted to swap. Those were the worst moments. Pee-wee said, you know, Arthur was okay. He was rough, but not deadly. The other power men, however, there were times when I thought I was going to have my balls smashed or my dick cut off. I thought I was going to be left to bleed to death in a laundry room or like a storage closet. He didn't know how much longer he was going to last. And he kind of wanted to be a power man himself. He just needed the opportunity, you know? So when Pee-wee heard all this talk about, you know, the rank above the power man, there was a rank, something higher. Well, someone higher. It was Hazel Brazel. Nobody dared just call him Hazel, though. He was too scary for that. He wasn't even part of the prison hierarchy. He had his own level. He was, he was above all the games. Not that he didn't assault and rape people, he did. Hazel would even straight up steal from the other power men, but nobody dared to do anything. He was like the king, the god of prison. He didn't do prison politics. He didn't have to trade shit. He didn't have to do anything. Hazel's name would even make Arthur shit his pants. 
everyone was terrified of Hazel. So knowing this, Pee-wee's like, well, I know what I have to do. The next time he's on kitchen duty, he makes a sandwich. And when nobody is looking, he slips a knife into his pocket. He walks straight over to Hazel's cell and gives him the sandwich and walks out. And for the next three weeks, he would randomly walk into Hazel's cell to give him a sandwich and walk right out. Why? So Hazel could get used to seeing Pee-wee come in and Pee-wee could get used to his surroundings. And finally, on the fifth time that Pee-wee walked into Hazel's cell, he saw Hazel sitting naked on the toilet reading a newspaper. Hazel's guy was standing and guarding his cell. Oh, I'm just here to give Hazel his sandwich and a drink, of course. From inside the room, you could hear Hazel fart loudly and say, Yeah, let the little piss ant in. Pee-wee walked in, put the sandwich down, stared at Hazel while he was grabbing the knife from inside his pocket. And Hazel was like, the fuck you staring at? And before Pee-wee could come up with an answer, he jumped up and jabbed the knife straight into Hazel's jugular and sliced his whole throat open. Hazel was naked on the toilet. He did not have time to defend himself. Obviously, guards rushed in, apprehended Pee-wee, and tried to save Hazel, but it was too late. Pee-wee committed murder in prison. But it didn't seem like the guards care that much. They just threw an extra three years onto a sentence, six months in solitary, and it was nothing. But from that day forward, it was everything to Pee-wee. Suddenly, power men were thanking him, congratulating him for having the balls to kill Hazel. Pee-wee was even gifted his own boy, his own Pee-wee, to rape. But he swore that he treated him good. He said, you know what? I never treated him like the other power men. I treated him like how I wanted to be treated when I was being raped. Which, like, what kind of logic is that? And he only got three years for full-on murder? Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, this guy is having a jolly old time in prison. That is, till he gets the message that his wife, Mary, the one that we never talked about since, remember? They got married, had some kids. They barely saw each other, and she was now filing for divorce. Oh, Pee-wee was pissed. He was so pissed that he decided he had to break out of prison to make her change her mind, or to hurt her, whichever one he was in the mood for. So he escaped from prison, hidden in the back of a garbage truck, which, side note, Pee-wee was a bit of an escape artist. He would continue to escape out of prison numerous times for the next 15 years. On one occasion, Pee-wee escaped, and he's like, I gotta join another carnival. Like, I gotta get out of here, right? He joins another carnival, marries another girl, then gets involved with this woman named Betty Gates, who's like a carnival contortionist. Like, I don't mean that she just performed at carnivals. She would contort herself into crazy positions when you were doing adult stuff, you know? And that got Pee-wee instantly infatuated with her. He was like head over heels while he was already married to somebody else. And she's like, hey, I gotta go bail my brother out of jail in Tennessee. He's like, okay, no problem. I have a stolen car. I've got some cash. I'm gonna use the cash to bail your brother out and I'm gonna drive you to Tennessee. We'll go pick him up. They get to Tennessee. They go to the jail. He meets her brother. They don't really look alike, but that's not on his mind right now. He's just excited. Gives him the bail money and is like, all right, well, I'm a fugitive on the run, so I probably shouldn't be hanging out in a jail. (laughs) They're going to lock me in by accident. I got to go. I'll see you guys at the hotel, right? Yeah. See you then. They never come. That wasn't Betty's brother. That was her husband. So, uh, And they also call the cops on Pee Wee. And he gets thrown back in prison. All because he cheated on his, I don't know, like 20th wife with a carnival contortionist. So when he gets out of prison the next time, he's fuming in anger, right? And here are, and I quote his own words, he statutory rapes a girl. He said her name was Patsy, and she lived in his mom's neighborhood. This is what he said about her. I had known Patsy nearly all my life, which wasn't that long considering she just turned 12 when I statutory raped her. 
It wasn't a spur of the moment thing for Pee Wee, not that it would make it any better, but he had been planning it for a very long time. He said whenever he saw her, he would get so hard he could no longer walk. And one day, he knew Patsy's parents were out of the house. She was home alone, and he knew he had to strike. He had to do something. So he knocked on the door, and, I mean, she knew him. There was no reason for her to not let him in. And once he knew for sure the two of them were alone, he spent a good deal of time telling terrified, traumatized 12-year-old Patsy about all these women that he had sex with and how much they loved having sex with him and how much he loved sex. Oh, and he told Patsy about the time that he beat a woman's head with a hatchet, and he did it again with a hammer. Oh, and how he killed a man in prison. I don't know what the desired effect was, but he was just bragging about all these deplorable crimes, and the more he was confessing to, Patsy was getting more and more terrified of him, to which Pee-wee looked at her briefly with sympathetic eyes and then was like, okay, well, take off your clothes and lay down. Spread your legs and I won't hurt you. He then proceeded to rape her. He said this about the assault. Her naked body was more exciting than I ever could have imagined. This was the best piece of virgin ass I have ever had, before or since in my whole life. So after the assault, he looks down and realizes that the sheets are covered in blood. But before he can get rid of the evidence or even take the sheets with him, he hears Patsy's family pulling up in the house. So he just flees. I mean, her parents could easily put two and two together. Pee-wee was arrested, taken to a courthouse, locked up inside a room to wait for his attorney, this guy's thinking, why should I have to go back to jail? I'm not going to jail for what? For rape? No. So he jumped out the tiny window in the room and fell 30 feet to the ground. But because he was relatively small, he didn't hit the floor too hard. He got away with only a few scrapes and bruises. What? Pee-wee would later argue that that wasn't true. He said that he forever limped because of the escape. That's arguable because the limp would mysteriously come and go. So I don't know. Do that with what you will. He also managed to write Pee-wee was here on the hood of a police car before fleeing the scene. From there, he stole a car, escaped to North Carolina, and I'm telling you, this guy is doing a lot. Which, side note, apparently one of his siblings lived in North Carolina at the time. And she just remembered that Pee-wee would show up to her house unannounced with tons of people. And she'd be like, yes, can I help you? Who are all these people, Pee-wee? And he's just like, move over, I need your house for this orgy I'm about to have. And she would refuse... And he would get mad to the point of physically hitting her. Now, in hindsight, she says that she feels incredibly lucky that he didn't kill her. He gets to North Carolina, immediately marries another girl. This time it was 17-year-old Lenny. Now, he said, she was a bit too old for my standards, but I liked her. Anyway, he wanted to make sure that they set off on the right foot. So he told her everything. You know, I'm an escaped con artist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I'm a, I'm a fugitive for sure. I'm not just a con artist. I'm a, I'm a prisoner. I'm a convict too. <laughs> what was I in prison? Oh, what was I in prison for? Does that matter? Okay, fine. I statutory raped a girl. Lenny was disgusted. She immediately went to the police and turned Pee-wee in, which is fascinating that the lesson that Pee-wee gets out of this was not, wow, I did something so disgusting that I am unlovable. Nobody will ever see that this is okay. Maybe I need to rethink my life decisions. He said, you know, when a woman decides to get her revenge, a man might as well bend over and kiss his asshole dick and balls goodbye. Pee-wee figured that Lenny was jealous and mad that he had statutory raped a 12-year-old girl, so she was getting her revenge by sending him to prison to serve the sentence that he was going to get. And I don't know how that's revenge. Like, that's a really bizarre way to look at the situation. Now, this is the most infuriating part. Pee-wee gets paroled from prison, and not too long after this, so he gets released. He just gets released. 
he how that's what i'm saying this is bizarre makes no sense he gets released, makes a return to South Carolina, and settles down in a small town called Sumter. At first, he said he tried to make an honest living. He stripped and repainted stolen cars. I love that that's a version of honest living for him. <laughs> He's like, I only dealt with the stolen cars. I didn't steal the cars, you know. He even rented a small home from an elderly landlord. He had a group of local boys who helped him fix up the cars. And one day, one of the boys decided to pull a knife on Pee-wee and rob him. Pee-wee was pissed. Here's the thing about Pee-wee. He considered himself a good person, which is shocking. But he genuinely, for some reason, thought he was a good person and a good functioning member of society. His whole reasoning was, well, one time there was an elderly woman on the side of the street. Her car had broken down and she clearly didn't have money to fix it. So I fixed it for her for free. Yeah, and Pee-wee felt like he had um, taken these young boys under his wing. And now they repaid him by what? By robbing him? Not okay. It's time for payback. He grabbed a gun, jumped into his car, and drove to where two of the boys lived. Forced them into his car at gunpoint, drove them to a nearby wooded area, made them hand over all their money, their watches, their marijuana, everything that they had. Then he stripped them down naked and said, You ever cross me again? I'll kill you. And left them naked in the woods. The next person to cross Pee-wee Gaskins would not be so lucky. Because according to Pee-wee, it was around this time he started feeling tendencies, feelings, urges. He called them, and I quote, them aggravated and bothersome feelings. It's just murderous, homicidal urges. Pee-wee actually compared the urges to PMS. Um, he said it was like, you know, clockwork. I start getting nervous by the 10th, edgy and mean by the 12th, and the pains would start on the 14th or 15th. You know, and then uh, years later, I read about the woman's PMS thing, and I reckon that's what I had. But for me, it was pre-murdering signals. He said, you know, it felt so physical. I'd feel the pain start in my testicles, and then it would travel up my spine, through into my stomach, and into my head, and the pain would just sit right behind my eyes, and it would just give me the worst migraine for days. If the migraine ever went away, I would start hearing this voice. The voice told me to do it. He said during these times, he would get so scared around his own kids because he didn't want to hurt them. So sometimes that included leaving his family to go on long rides in the car. And on one of those occasions, Pee-wee picked up a female hitchhiker, and let's call her Angie. And he's like, where are you going, Angie? Oh, uh, Charleston tonight, Jacksonville tomorrow. And Pee-wee keeps driving, and according to him, from the minute that she got on the car, she starts talking a mile a minute about her life, her travels, and he said he did not give a shit. So the first chance that he got, he interrupted her and cut straight to the chase. Listen. I really wasn't planning on taking you any further than Georgetown. If you want, though, I can drive you all the way to Charleston if we can have a nice dinner and share a hotel room when we get there. Now, according to even Pee Wee himself, the woman laughed nervously, politely declined, and followed up with another nervous laugh. But nervous laugh or not, it was still a laugh. And it was still accompanied by a rejection. That made Pee-wee very, very, very angry. He didn't show it right away, but he was fuming. He kept his eyes on the road, his hands gripping the steering wheel so tight his knuckles were turning white. He drove calmly. Now, you would think that this type of anger would go away in a few hours while he drove, but it didn't. He pulled over on the dirt road outside of Georgetown, looked over at the woman in his passenger seat side, and he said this. You know, when I stopped, I turned sideways on the seat. I stared at her, and that was the moment when my miracle came shining through. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I didn't see a real beam of light, but I did find my answer. The answer was simple. I had to kill her. I remember smiling to myself and wondering, why hadn't I thought about that before? If she was dead, she would never tell anyone. So once I made up my mind that she was going to die, I could do anything I wanted to her. Anything. But before she could get out the car, Pee Wee swung at her and hit her on the head. Her head slammed against the dashboard and he kept hitting her until she was so dazed she couldn't fight back. He looked around and drove further down the dirt road, found a secluded area covered by trees, looked around again, got out and pulled her out. Do you know what an Arkansas toothpick is? It's an incredibly long, sharp knife. Um, it, it's really long. It looks more like a dagger, but it, the end of the knife comes to a point, a literal point. It's very pointy at the end. Now, for some reason, Pee Wee had this in his car and he pulled it out and used it to threaten Angie to stay quiet. He ripped off her shirt, her underwear, and he said, and I quote, all I could think about in that moment was how I could do anything I wanted to her. He first ordered her to perform fellatio. Then he pushed her onto her back and straddled her, straddled her. From there, he said he tore off her nipple along with about an inch of breast tissue. And she started screaming and tears streamed down her face. And he choked her with a belt and told her, and I quote, don't cry, I'll share it. He then proceeded to force her own nipple between her lips and ordered for her to suck it. He claimed that after that, he forced her to chew her own nipple so that she could eat it. But she started gagging and vomiting over both of them. And for some reason, that really pissed him off. It sent him over the edge. He said, and I quote, I mean, there just wasn't a reason for her to throw up everywhere. Yeah, no reason, he said. So out of anger, he stood up, tried to fling the vomit off of him and stomped on her pelvis as hard as he could over and over. Then he turned her over and violently sodomized her. He said that she kept crying. It hurts. Please stop. So he tightened the belt around her neck to make her hurt even more. When he was done, he put her in the trunk of his car and she was still alive. And he tried to reason with her. Shh, if you stay quiet and you cooperate with me, I'm going to let you live. We both know where this story goes. So why did he say that if he knew he was going to kill her? He said, I once read in a book about Nazi death camps. That's the best way to get someone to cooperate with you is to tell them that you're not going to die. It works. So he drove her in the trunk down to the marshes, which is, it's like quicksand. Anything with a bit of weight is going to sink into the marshes bottom. And there's all sorts of living creatures in the sand. It'll just eat up whatever sinks. Pee Wee parked the car, pulled the woman out the trunk, gagged her with her own underwear and shirt. And I mean, at this point, she couldn't even talk. She was gagged so hard she could barely breathe. But he laughed at her and made a game of it. And he was like, beg, beg, bitch, and I'll let you live. She obviously couldn't. So he found a six foot long tree limb, tied the woman's knees together, pulled her knees up to her chin, tied the rope around her neck. Essentially, he said it looked like she was tied like a flag at the end of a pole to the stick essentially. And he took out his knife, his Arkansas toothpick, and he pushed 10 inches of the knife into her anal cavity. He said that he did this deliberately and very slowly. And when he had the knife inside of her, he sliced back and forth. And he said, and I quote, where she used to have two little holes, now she just had one big hole. The only regret Pee-wee said he had was when he was twisting, jerking the knife around and she was screaming. He couldn't take the gag out to hear her. Instead, he dragged her to the edge of the marsh and dumped her in the water. And I quote, She didn't make bubbles for very long. 
I felt truly the best I ever remembered feeling my whole life. All that bothersomeness inside me sank into the marsh with that girl. From then on, whenever the pain came back, I knew what I had to do to get rid of it. This was allegedly the first of many alleged coastal kills. And you're like, what are the coastal kills? What? So Pee Wee would categorize his kills into two separate brackets, coastal kills and serious murders. Coastal kills, according to him, were along the coastal highways of the South. He would pick up hitchhikers, female, male, didn't matter, because at the end, these were his, quote, pleasure kills. They were to let off steam and quench his PMS symptoms. He wanted to ease his feelings of bothersomeness. He said in order for him to really enjoy it, he made sure to torture each and every victim and make them stay alive for as long as possible. He would stab, suffocate, mutilate, and even cannibalize the coastal kill victims. Pee-wee said that the cannibalism was out of pure curiosity. He just wanted to see what it would taste like. So he had taken a woman's nipple, cooked it, and he said, you know, it was a very strange flavor when cooked. Real good, but I think it was more good based on the idea of it than the actual taste. He tried eating other body parts, but he decided cannibalism wasn't really his thing. So it wasn't a regular practice of his. Here's a direct quote. I did whatever I wanted. Some of them I cut, some I burned. I ran a cable in and out of one. I hung her up by that cable. I pumped another one full of water, which really seemed to hurt. I filled her up until it came out of her nose and mouth. And she died quick, which I didn't expect. So I didn't do that anymore. I prefer them to last as long as possible. I took my time, and when finished, I usually killed them the same the way that I killed the first one. Weigh them down, throw them in the marsh. So I take care of killing them and burying them at the same time. First, though, I always took off any handcuffs that I had put on them because, you know, it's crazy to sink something as expensive as handcuffs. If you ask Pee Wee about how many victims he had in his coastal killings, he would say anywhere between 80 to 90. What? Yeah, so if we're going off Pee Wee's own admissions, he would be one of the most prolific serial killers to date. But none of his coastal kills have been corroborated by the authorities. So we have to take it with a grain of salt, but... I think if there's even a chance that he killed one, that's one too many. So on the other hand, his serious murders, which were corroborated by authorities, most of them that is, these were the murders that Pee Wee committed because they were close to home. So these are either people in his community, his inner circle, his family, his friends. And he said that he didn't kill them out of pleasure. He killed them out of necessity. Yeah, so coastal kills are like a fun activity to blow off steam on the weekends. Meanwhile, the murder of his friends and family were a more serious affair. That's why he called them serious murders. So for his first, quote, serious murder, he killed his own niece and her school friend. Okay, yeah, like what on earth? Like this guy just said he killed out of necessity. There is no, never a reasoning to kill anyone, but I can't even remotely think of one reason someone would want to kill their own niece who happens to be 15 years old. So Janice Kirby, Pee-wee's niece, was 15 at the time. And she had this best friend, Patricia, who was 17. And they were attached at the hip. They lived in the same neighborhood. You know, they're both minors and they're both teenagers. So yeah, sometimes they did things that they shouldn't be doing. They liked to party, get drunk, and hang out, talk to boys. Janice felt really lucky because she had this cool uncle, Uncle Pee-wee. And he was the type that didn't approve of underage drinking, but he never got mad if he caught you. Unlike your parents. He sounds like the type of uncle you would call when you're drunk and you need a ride home because your parents would flip out. Listen, Pee Wee was weird. 
Janice didn't know this at the time, but he has some bizarre rules around kids. He hated any adults that swore or drank around children. He felt like they were all deadbeats that was messed up. He refused to do any of that stuff around the kids. But he wasn't against raping or, quote, statutory raping and killing kids. But he drew the damn line at using the word fuck when kids are around. So one day Janice gets drunk and she can't go home till she's sober because her parents are going to be mad. She's a bit stressed about what to do. The friend that's driving her around for her to sober up needs to go with the car. Like he's, she's like, I got to go home. I'm going to miss curfew. You need to get out. But Janice needs to sober up. And she's like, what do I do? What do I do? And then she spots Uncle Pee Wee in his car. She's like, wait, pull over. That's my uncle. Okay, Patricia, why don't you come with me into my uncle's car so that our friend, whoever is driving, can go home, make curfew, and he'll take us home when we sober up. I mean, it makes complete sense. Uncle Pee Wee agrees. It's a phenomenal idea. The two girls get in his car and Janice immediately throws up. Not great, but not the end of the world. Well, it was for Pee Wee. He just decided without input that Janice was going to need a cold shower and He started driving back to his isolated house in one of the most rural parts of the entire town. Parks the car. Drags Janice out the car and starts undressing her in the bathroom. Patricia was sober enough to realize that this was really, really weird. So, uh, um, Uncle Pee-wee, why don't you let me help Janice with that? Pee-wee smiled. Patricia, I'm her uncle. I've been bathing her all my life. Patricia just still felt uneasy, but all she could do was help. So she she tried, but she's starting to feel unnerved by the whole thing. She's helping bathe Janice. And, and afterward, Pee-wee says, all right now, both of you guys come to the bedroom so I can give you guys some spare clothes. Janice is in and out of consciousness. And the minute that the two girls walk into the bedroom, he pulls out his gun and his long pointed knife, the Arkansas toothpick, and is like, Janice, This is to teach you a lesson to never get so drunk again. Both of you, take off your clothes. He forces them to strip. And when Patricia refuses, it's said that he flashed her his penis and then smacked her on the side of the head with a pistol. She got back up and tried to fight. Janice wasn't in great condition either. At one point, she fell unconscious again and Pee Wee tried to sodomize her. But that attempt woke her up. He tried to sodomize his own niece. It woke her up and she was so alarmed, she started fighting back immediately. So up against the two girls, Pee Wee starts feeling overwhelmed. Neither girl is cooperating. It was not going as planned. So he just decides he has to kill both of them. And while he's having all these thoughts swirling around in his head, bonk, Patricia hits him on the head with a lamp. Two girls have enough time to run out into the woods around Pee-wee's house, but the lamp wasn't strong enough. Pee-wee got right back up and starts chasing after them. He knocked them out with the blunt end of the pistol, tied them up, and raped both of them. He stuffed Patricia's body into the septic tank where it wouldn't be discovered for another five years, but he felt bad burying his niece in such an undignified spot. So he put her dead body in the trunk of his car while he thought about what to do next. So he went over to his sister's house. Thank God, not the parents of Janice, but still family, and had coffee with his sister, Carol. She would later say, I had no idea that my niece's body was sitting outside my house in his trunk. I don't know what kind of sick answers he was looking for at his sister's house, but he went and buried Janice in a shallow grave close to the family graveyard. It would take the whole family seven full years to figure out what exactly happened. He killed his niece because she wouldn't let him rape her to teach her a lesson about not getting drunk. Not too long after, Pee-wee claimed he killed a 13-year-old named Peggy Coutino. Now, I say claimed because he was never convicted of the murder. Actually, law enforcement convicted another man by the name of Junior Pierce. 
But Pee-wee claimed it was definitely him that killed her. And police were like, why? Well, well, Peggy lives in the small town that I live in, and she was walking by with her friends. And I smiled and politely said, hello, Peggy. But Peggy stuck up her nose and refused to respond. And her friend asked her, who was that? Peggy responded to her friend, just white trash. And the PMS symptoms came rushing back. This mortally offended Pee-wee. He had a burning desire to kill Peggy. But he couldn't because she was too close to home. So he claimed that he killed a hitchhiker to try and get this PMS symptom out of his mind to get all the murderous urges out. But he still couldn't stop thinking about, and I quote, the little Miss Peggy bitch. So he plotted to kill her. He claimed he tortured, assaulted, and killed her. And if you thought that Pee Wee couldn't get worse, he does. His next victim was Martha Ann Dix. Martha was 20 years old. She went to reform school just like Pee-wee, she was a lesbian, and her name, she nicknamed herself Clyde to let people know that she was a lesbian, and that's what we're going to call her since that seems to be the way that she introduced herself the most. Pee-wee did not like her one bit. Here's a quote from Pee-wee trying to mansplain that he's not homophobic. He said, now, don't get me wrong. I surely understand what the sight and smell and the taste of a pee, the private area of a woman can do to a person so i don't blame clyde and her kind for liking to lick and suck each other but for women to do it to women just don't just don't seem right the way it's intended woman's supposed to get fucked by men of course playing that weird lesbian game in prison where they're There's not always a dick handy. That's understandable. That's the same as a man in prison having to settle for a mustached mouth or a muscle butt. You know, I'm explaining all of this because I just don't want anybody to get the idea it was any kind of prejudice that led me to murder Clyde. I didn't kill her because she was black. Okay, what? So this whole thing is Pee Wee failing, but trying to explain that he's not homophobic, but then he's like, I swear I'm not racist. It's like, But Clyde was black and lesbian, okay? And Pee-wee was a thousand percent racist and a thousand percent homophobic. But he claims that's not why he killed Clyde. He killed her because she hurt his feelings. Listen, Clyde was a very witty, funny person. She was the type of personality that could command a room when she walked in. She could make everybody laugh. One of her favorite punchlines was that she had a penis. But for fragile male egos, sometimes this joke would cross into offensive territory. Okay, let me explain. During a conversation between Pee-wee and Clyde, Clyde was just joking and said something along the lines of, man, I'm more man than you, Pee-wee. All I need is an actual dick. And that really bothered Pee-wee. He could live with Clyde poking fun at other guys, but he couldn't deal with being the butt of her jokes. Clyde allegedly also said things like, I thought my girlfriend was good till I let Pee-wee suck me. Clyde also joked that she was pregnant with Pee-wee's baby and was planning on naming it Pee-wee Dix. And Pee-wee just drew the line. Sure, he raped and killed his niece, but attacking his masculinity and mocking his Pee-wee? Plus the fact that Clyde claimed that she had a penis and if they were pregnant together, that meant that Pee-wee was gay. And if everybody thought that Pee-wee was gay, that was attacking his masculinity. Logically, he had to murder her. There was no other way. Pee-wee claims that he tried the diplomatic approach and confronted Clyde in private and said, hey, can you quit making me the butt of your jokes? And allegedly she responded, Pee-wee, I would tell you to suck my ass, but you would probably like the taste of my shit so much I couldn't get rid of you. Pee-wee kept his cool and was like, you know what? If you're that good, why don't you come over and I'll give you some pills and I'll pay you $5 for some moral sex. 
Clyde thought that they were literally joking in good fun, you know? Like, I mean, her comeback's fine. I guess maybe they rubbed Pee Wee the wrong way, but there was nothing inherently, like, racist or homophobic. Like, does that make sense? There was nothing yeah, yeah. that inflammatory about it. Yeah. It's like just all fun and games. So Clyde's like, yeah, I'll come over, thinking it's just banter between them. She thought it was going to be a pleasant evening. She went over. Pee Wee gave her some pills. She thought it was mood-enhancing pills, so she took it. And soon enough, she was high, drunk, naked, and singing around the room. In that position, Pee-wee overpowered her, handcuffed her, punched her down to the ground, and force-fed her every last one of the pills with swigs of beer. She lost consciousness, and he groped her, and he said that he sniffed her down there. And he defensively added, but I didn't taste it, I just sniffed. Clyde died of an overdose shortly after. He threw her body into a ditch to cover his tracks, and no one was suspicious for the longest time because Clyde was known to be a drug dealer. Everyone thought that she genuinely died of an overdose. I mean, all of this was making Pee-wee ballsier. He later kidnapped a woman from Atlanta by the name of Ann Colberson, tortured her for four days straight, smashed her head in from behind with a hammer, and buried her next to his niece. This was also around the time that he tried cannibalism again in the form of the leg. He tried a leg. He didn't like it. Then he bought a hearse. You know what a hearse is? They're the cars that carry um, coffins to funerals. Mm -hmm. And it raised a few eyebrows. And people are like, why'd you buy a hearse? And he would just laugh and say, you know, I killed so many people. I need a car to haul off all the bodies to my private cemetery. And everyone would just laugh. Yeah. And then Pee Wee befriended Eddie and Bertie Brown. So Eddie and Bertie Brown were his friends, despite the fact that he had a burning hatred for black people. And Bertie and Eddie were black. Pee Wee says, and I quote, but Bertie was the prettiest black woman I had ever seen. If I ever got a hard-on for a black woman, it was for Bertie Brown. To tell it straight, no lie, she could have been in the movies. I hate this man. Pee-wee liked the couple so much that he would even invite them over for dinner, but only when his wife wasn't home because she was a lot more racist than he was, and she would have fainted if she saw some POCs at her dining table. Yeah. Pee-wee eventually went into business with Eddie. They would buy guns, sell them, and it was just a lot of shady stuff. And he said that he didn't have any homicidal thoughts until the police started picking up Eddie on their radar. They started asking him questions, asking around about Eddie. And now Pee-wee claims he only killed Eddie and Bertie. He didn't want to. They were his friends. He didn't kill them because he was racist. He killed them because he was scared that they were going to rat him out under the pressure. And he refused to go back to prison. So he shot them till they died. But Pee Wee thought he was a nice guy. When he saw 22-year-old Doreen Hope Dempsey and her younger daughter, 2-year-old Robin Dempsey, he felt bad for her. You know, she's a single mom. So this nice guy that he is, uh, he offered to let her live with him and his wife when she had nowhere to go. He really did help her out. When she got pregnant a second time, he offered to let her stay at a trailer he had in the countryside. He told Doreen, you can live there for free. As long as sometimes that I come over, you return the sexual favor once, you know, once in a while. I mean, what kind of mom wants to do that? Nobody. But Doreen did it so that she would have a home for her kids. That's all she cared about. So she's like, thank you so much. They pack all their stuff into Pee Wee's hearse and they drive it to the trailer. Pee Wee said that this murder was hard for him to talk about because he's such a nice guy. But there was no trailer. He wasn't going to let them live in one, even if there was. On the way there, he pulled over and told Doreen, I want you to give me a blowjob first. She hesitated because her two-year-old daughter is in the car, but she felt so pressured that she needed this trailer. She got into the back of the hearse, she's heavily pregnant, and she started performing fellatio on Pee-wee. 
But when she stopped, she noticed that Pee Wee had brought her two-year-old daughter to the back and was touching her. So she screamed, what are you doing? But it was too late. Pee Wee hit her on the head with the hammer, knocking her unconscious. He brutally raped two-year-old Robin and choked her to death as he sodomized the two-year-old girl. And then finished Doreen, the mom, by cutting her throat. When later he asked, why on earth did you do that? He said he had to kill Doreen because she had gotten pregnant with a black man and he had to kill Robin because she was a mixed baby. But later in his book, he wrote, you know, I just lied to the police when I said that. I mean, yeah, I'm racist, but that's not why I killed them. I couldn't admit to the police that I just wanted to rape a two-year-old because then they would tell the guards and the guards would tell the inmates and then I would be a target in prison. I would be at the bottom. But if I kill a two-year-old for being mixed... I'm not at the bottom. In fact, he would actually receive praise in prison by fellow racist people. Pee Wee would later describe the assault of a two-year-old as, and I quote, the best sex of his life. The next few years, Pee Wee went on a spree of just killing everyone in his path and trying to make money. He would steal boats with friends and then kill his friends because he didn't want to share the profits then he killed a man named silas barnwell yates because his ex was like you need to kill my new boyfriend he's not giving me money and paid him money to kill her boyfriend it was just weird he's just literally going around killing everybody in his path so the situation with silas was very interesting because the police later found his body and medical examiners said that they believe that his cause of death was bleeding from a neck wound which likely would have been done by a knife but peewee sat there and was like it wasn't a knife i karate chopped him the police are like what he's like yeah, yeah yeah i karate no i got really strong hands so every morning i would hit my radiator with my hand karate chop it as hard as possible because that's giving me practice to be able to karate chop people to death and he was like here here film feel my hand it's really firm <sighs> then peewee killed 25 year old diane neely her 34 year old boyfriend avery he killed them because he felt like he had to that they knew too much about his criminal activities of stealing and selling stuff then he killed Diane's brother, Dennis, and their stepbrother, John. John was only 15. Like, he just killed them all to keep them quiet. The same year, he killed a 13-year-old named Kim. So Kim was a little girl from Pee Wee's neighborhood. And honestly, she had a really hard family life. Her mom had recently died from cancer. Her dad was so abusive. And Kim was just so desperate for a parental figure. So she befriended Pee Wee and his 20-year-old wife, Donna. And both of them took Kim in. They would take her on trips, let her sleep over, took her to the movies. At school, Kim wrote that Donna was the person she admired most in the whole world. And when the abuse from her father became too much, Kim ran away to Pee Wee and begged him to let her live with him and Donna. Obviously, Pee Wee can't do that because he's not the legal guardian, so technically it'd be kidnapping. But he's like, you know what, Kim? I'm going to have you live with my half-sister. Kim went and stayed there for a few months, and honestly, it was the worst few months of her life. Pee-wee would come visit Kim and his half-sister weekly to rape Kim. He would bring his brothers to rape Kim, and even his brother-in-law would rape Kim. Kim tried to tell a local store owner that she was being molested, but Pee-wee was like, oh, you know how 13-year-olds are with these imaginary stories. Authorities later found Kim's body. She had been shot and stabbed, but PB was never charged with her murder since there wasn't even enough evidence, even though she was the last seen with Pee-wee. The police did, however, arrest a guy named Walter Neely. So this guy was the ex-husband of one of Pee-wee's victims, Diane Neely, but he was mentally disabled. He had an IQ of 56 and a personality disorder that made him dependent on other people. So Pee-wee kept Walter around as muscle. He would have him dig graves. 
Walter personally witnessed the murders of Dennis and John, but Pee Wee thought, wait, why don't I just frame all of this on Walter? Because the police are kind of breathing down my neck about this whole Kim situation. So if I just have them looking at Walter, it's all going to blow over. But it backfired because once Walter was arrested, the pressure was turned up and he gave up the location to Pee Wee's secret cemetery where they had buried eight of their victims. So with that, Pee Wee was arrested and sentenced to death which would later be commuted to life in prison. Now you're like, oh, okay, well, that's the climactic end to the story. You're wrong. So in prison, there's another murder. In prison, Pee Wee started corresponding with an author and a literary professor, Jim Beatty. They start bonding over the fact that Pee Wee wanted to write his own book called Pee Wee and Me. Yeah, it was supposed to be like a redemption era book. And I think that Jim really wanted to see the good in Pee Wee. Like he really did. Maybe a little too much. Jim thought that there was still some good in Pee Wee. As evil as he is, there's got to be something. Which I don't agree with, but okay. So he starts making weekly visits to go see Pee Wee. And Pee Wee honestly didn't seem that upset in prison. He was a power man. He was living life, raping people. Nothing could touch him except for his hemorrhoids. If you've never had hemorrhoids, they're essentially swollen and inflamed veins in the rectum that cause discomfort and bleeding out of your butthole when you poop. You can get them when you... (laughs) I know I'm laughing because I've had hemorrhoids. I've had them before. (laughs) You can get them by pushing too hard when you poo or when you're pregnant like you it's very common it's a very common thing most people don't even know they have hemorrhoids they just think that they have uncomfortable poops for a while it's hemorrhoids so when peewee had really bad hemorrhoids the state of south carolina was denying him medication for it he sued them the whole freaking state for what you ask cruel and unusual punishment Okay, it really irks my gears when serial killers complain about the smallest things in prison. Meanwhile, you took so many human lives. You and your hemorrhoids can go rot in a cell for the rest of eternity for all we care. We don't care. Pee Wee was suing the state for $1 million. Jim went to the trial, not out of support, but out of curiosity more. And uh, Pee Wee won. The state settled and opted to give Pee Wee $1 dollar and a large tube of hemorrhoid cream oh yeah 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 so jim Beatty, the author was visiting peewee so often that when christmas rolled around peewee had even gifted jim's son a handmade gift the family said it was the scariest strangest weirdest most frightening thing that they had ever seen it was a denim hat hand sewn from an old pair of peewee's jeans and it had horns and the horns were painted red to look like they had been dipped in blood they didn't know how to respond But Pee-wee and Jim got along great, honestly. They had a few tense moments, like this holiday gift, but they were almost like friends. Not really, but almost. That is, until Pee-wee implicated Jim in murder. Jim was almost done with his book, Pee-wee and Me. He was excited to get it published out into the world, and he's like, yes, I I feel good, you know? You know what? Fuck Pee-wee for everything he did, but also there's some good in this guy, a shred of good left. He's always been nothing but nice to me and my family. This is like a a redemption book. He doesn't need a redemption book. But before it was finished, Pee-wee asked Jim to mail him 50 feet of wire because the prison TV was down and they needed wire to fix it so they could watch Sunday's football game. Jim's like, what the hell? He's been nothing but nice to me. I mean, they should get a working TV in prison. He bought the wire, mailed it to him. It was not for Sunday's night football game. It was for a makeshift bomb. Pee-wee had taken a hit job. He was going to kill another inmate named Rudolph Tyner. This was a black inmate on death row. So the backstory on Rudolph was that he had walked into a grocery store with the intent to commit robbery. 
But the owners were there, Murdy and Bill Moon. Bill Moon was a retired Air Force sergeant and Vietnam veteran. So he's not about to let some 18-year-old with a gun rob him. So he said, no, I'm not going to hand over any money, kid. Rudolph shot and killed both Bill Moon and his wife, Marty. He grabbed $200 from the register and ran. The Moon's only son, Tony, lived across the street, heard the commotion, ran to the store, found both his parents dead in a pool of blood. He said, I looked over the counter and my mother and father were laying in a pool of blood. My mother had a hole in her chest big enough to stick my fist through. I felt her pulse and she didn't have any. Neither did my dad. All I could feel was my own heart pounding and the cash register was open. Rudolph was convicted and sentenced to death, but Tony felt like justice wasn't quick enough. He wanted it now. So he commissioned the only inmate crazy enough to take this hit job, Pee Wee, to kill Rudolph in prison. So Pee Wee started making a makeshift bomb. And side note, Pee Wee used to be a mechanic of sorts, so it was kind of a piece of cake for him, which is honestly alarming. He was successful thanks to the wire that Jim sent him. He made the bomb, disguised it as a radio, befriended Rudolph, and he was like, hey, Rudolph, do you want to talk via a radio in our cells, like a little walkie-talkie situation? Here, friend, let me bring this to you. Well, actually, I'm going to have this guy bring you a little radio. Talk into it, okay? And listen real close, see if you can hear me. When Rudolph put the radio to his ear... Pee-wee detonated the bomb, and the bomb literally blew off Rudolph's head and hands. He died almost instantly. Pee-wee was arrested. The star witness was James Brown, who had cut a deal with the prosecutor. This is another inmate. James had seen everything. He saw how Pee-wee made the bomb. Pee-wee asked James to deliver it to Rudolph. So he was there every step of the way. And during the trial, the prosecutor was like, what is your relationship with Pee-wee? And he said, we were lovers. And Pee-wee shot up from his seat and started screaming, wait, but you have to ask him who's on top. Ask him who's on top. Uh-oh. So fragile masculinity never ceases to die. Pee-wee was found guilty and sentenced to death penalty because, so the reason his original death sentence was commuted to life was because South Carolina made the death penalty illegal, but they made it legal again. So he got sentenced to death again. They were just doing a lot. And as for Tony, the moon's son, he pled guilty for conspiracy. He was sentenced to eight years, but he would only spend six months in prison. And the community rallied behind him because... They felt like he would never have done that if his parents hadn't been murdered in cold blood. But it didn't matter because he spiraled into depression and alcoholism and he died in 2001 from an alcohol overdose. Meanwhile, Jim had his manuscript ready to go, but he would never publish it because the police would spend countless hours interrogating him as an accomplice for murder. Why did you send the wire? Do you know you effectively helped kill a man? That's when he said he knew that there was no good in Pee-wee's heart. Hence the podcast, Pee-wee Gaskins is not your friend. Jim was used. So Pee-wee ironically believed in the death penalty, just not for him. So he tried to take his own life the morning of the execution. It failed. He was strapped down and executed via electric shock. His last words were, I'll let my lawyers talk for me. I'm ready to go. But in the book, he wrote this. And it gave me chills thinking about how alarming and disturbing this is. I have walked the same path as God by taking lives and making others afraid. I became God's equal through killing others. I became my own master. Through my own power, I come to my own redemption. He's saying he's like God. If we go by Pee-wee's confessions and his proclaimed list of victims, that means he has taken the lives of close to 100 to 110 people but only 18 have been confirmed by authorities, which even in that case is 18 too many. But that is the story of Pee Wee Gaskins. I mean, what are your thoughts on this case? Because 
honestly, I wish I didn't find that shady, sketchy PDF because it's so traumatizing to read through the way that he rationalizes his crimes and, oh, this is bad unless I do it. Cursing around kids is bad, but I can kill him. Have you ever met people like that where rules don't apply to them, but everybody else? So bizarre. You got to stay away and you got to stay safe, okay? I will see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.